And Mark Malloy came out. Why don't you come? Mark, can I pray for you, friend? Absolutely. Father, I thank you for this man. I thank you just for his wisdom. I thank you for his heart. Uh, Lord, we, we celebrate him. We celebrate their family. And we just bless him. And I pray your anointing to be upon this man as he speaks. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, actually, I thought Clayton had asked us to give it a testimony. I didn't know we asked Clayton to give it a testimony. But at any rate, uh, what I do is uh, I work for an investment company, and I visit sites around the country uh, to look at the construction aspects. And so this last week, I was in Minneapolis, and uh, I just want to report that it was eight degrees above zero. And... <laughs> very cold. Uh, so uh, I'd finished my uh, site visits and my construction meetings. So I uh, do what I always do. I go to my phone and I uh, dial up uh, an Uber. And um, I enjoy Uber. I, uh, I actually enjoy taxis too because I get, I always sit in the front seat with the Ubers and uh, I always chat them up, you know, and it's, it's very interesting. You learn a lot of things. And uh, so this was John. Uh, usually it's Mohammed, or <laughs> especially if in Minneapolis, it's surprising, you know, Somali. But at any rate, um, so John and I were talking, and you get into, you know, family, kids, weather, business, whatever. And uh, so it came up that, yeah, I have five daughters, uh, put them all through school, and uh, got them all married. We have 12 grandchildren. And he looked at me, he says, how did you do that? And I said, well, I have to say, it was all God. I said, it's all sort of a blur, but I know that God did it. And he, says, and he says, well, you know, that's strange because I had a car full of Chinese this morning, and they were talking about God, too. They were all Christians. And he says, you know, I've been seeking God. And, and so he said, tell me more, you know. So we talked, and uh, it was, it was uh, very interesting. And uh, so... Um, uh, the, the, the theme, actually, of our lives has been, you know, don't worry about what you're going to say, what, what, what you're going to say, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're clothing, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And we've seen it time and time and time again, where God has blessed us with jobs in recessions, out of recessions, you know, uh, good bosses, bad bosses. You know, he's, he's, he's blessed us. And, uh, you know, I, I'm an architect, and, you know, people lump architects in with lawyers, Sam, and, uh, and doctors, you know, in terms of income. But it's just not the case. We started out, you know, $4 an hour, and my first raise was 50 cents. Actually, it was 25 cents until I told my boss we were expecting our first baby, and she said, okay, 50 cents. <laughs> and... Uh, but we, we grew up, we, we had a, an Egyptian boss who, was our, uh, who led us to the Lord and was our mentor, our uh, disciple, and he gave us literally boxes, and I'm talking a hundred, a hundred case of tapes from Derek Prince, Bob Mumford, Ern Baxter, these names don't register to anybody under 40. <laughs> okay. And so we learned to trust God. We learned principles of God. And, uh, and one of the main principles we learned was generosity. God, it says, God loves you know, a cheerful giver. And so I was thinking about this. And so 
years ago, we went to a church called Christian Assembly over in Fairfax, and we met at Oakton High School. And after we did that, I swore I'd never go to another church that met in a high school, but here we are. <laughs> so I was in the corridor, and uh, we got there late. We had a baby, and we were late. And uh, so I was writing the tithe check, and I was leaning up against the wall like this. And I stopped, and I looked up, and I said, Lord, and I smiled at the ceiling. And I said, God, you see this? It's a cheerful. I'm writing this cheerfully because <laughs> I wanted to get full credit. Because every time, every time we wrote a check, it hurt, you know, and I didn't feel cheerful because, you know, we, we were running thin. But um, God blessed us every time we did that. And so it says um, in uh, 2 Corinthians, now I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's, there's two aspects. God loves a cheerful giver. But in Old Testament, you sin, you die. New Testament, he says, you give according to the purpose in your heart. It's, according, it's not under compulsion. It's under conviction and anointing of the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, he whispers in your ear, you know, give that person, do this, do that, write this. And it's not under compulsion. And so this whole thing, give to get, is the prosperity gospel. It's twisted. But there's, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. So, uh, so the, um, we were broke, but there were people in our church that were broker than Marcia and I. And there were two Steves. One was going to be a pastor, and one was going to be a dentist. And so uh, a bunch of us said, these guys are going, you know, they don't have anything to eat. And, and you know, they're barely living. And they had, one had a wife and a child. And so we all kind of pooled our resources. And so, you know, so it was like 20 bucks a month here, 30 bucks. And so we did that, and we did it for three or four or five years. You know, they got these th guys through school. And uh, so... Why am I saying that? Well, it's the scripture of the loaves and fishes. Now, Jesus did it instantaneously. It took us longer. I don't know why. But we gave little scraps. These were just scraps. 20 bucks, 30 bucks a month is a scrap. And so, but we put it together, and God has blessed literally thousands of people Steve, the dentist, has a practice. His son is in practice, and he's a delightful guy. You, some of you have probably been to him, but uh, he is, he's a deacon in the church, and he has touched literally thousands of lives, and he gives a testimony when he, and all this. And the other guy is Steve. He's the vicar of Luckett's. He's an Episcopal priest, spirit-filled, and uh, there's a whole story behind it, but uh, he's the, the vicar of Luckett's, and he's a hospice uh, minister, and he's ministering right now to Debbie Fulmer's father, who's in hospice care. So, I mean, these guys have touched literally thousands of lives, and so that's the ministry, that's the principle of giving. You give a little bit, and God multiplies it, okay? So it's giving by faith. Now, what are the principles of giving by faith? So you become aware of a need, you pray into that need, and God drops an idea into your head, a conviction, 
in your heart that you should give towards that need. Now, you can't solve everybody's need. Nobody has the resources to solve somebody's need. They have their own life, but you don't have to worry about that. You just have to worry about being faithful to what God tells you to do, right? So, uh, now here's, here's where the rubber meets the road. Then you have to write the check, or then you have to go in your wallet and pull out the money, and it's like, are you sure, God? You know, are you sure you want me to do this? And, he's, and then he's like, yes. And, and, and so there's an awkwardness. There's always an awkwardness because you're acting in faith when you give. That's an act of faith. So um, now uh, we gave, and everybody here is, I know everybody's here generous. Everybody's here generous. And, and, but uh, we also received. Now we had a woman at our church uh, and I can see her name because probably nobody knows her, Edith Whitley. And she was one of those sort of women that was spiritual. And she sort of floated in and floated out. You know, she was on a different plane than everybody else. And uh, so one morning after the services, she came up to us and she said, Mark and Marcia, here's $100. I thought, great. She said, I'm going to give this on your behalf. I thought, crap. <laughs> <laughs> I could use that hundred dollars and uh, she says now God told me to give this on your behalf I thought okay well Edith go for it and uh, that week at work uh, I got a check for I, I forget the exact amount between eleven hundred and fifteen hundred dollars out of the blue we worked a lot of overtime in architecture and they never paid us for the overtime. Well, one of my colleagues sued my employer. And we got the settlement check that week. Nobody knew. And of course, he was gone the next week. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, he moved on. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, the. Uh, so it says in Luke 6.38, give and it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give in to your, in King James it says one thing, but I'll just say lap. You all know the verse. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. So here's the picture I have. It, you know, it's a paradox. Uh, last week, uh, Clayton said, uh, you ha in, in the kingdom, you have to go down to go up. In the kingdom, uh, you have to give to release the blessings that God has for you. And it's not to give to get, because you give here, and God blesses you over here. It's not a direct correlation. And it's your intent, if that's your intent, you're not going to get, you're not going in the right direction. So your intent is generosity, listening to God. And so, but there is a principle. If you give, God will be generous to you. If, if you're generous, God will be generous. So I see, imagine a bubble. Outside of that bubble is God's generosity. And it, you're inside the bubble. Now we pray, we sing a song that says, open the windows of heaven and let the rain fall. So every time you give, you're opening one of those windows and allowing God's blessing to flow into your life. Jobs, 
romance, whatever, right romance, are you? But blessings will flow. And so when Edith gave us that money on our behalf, I call that intercessory giving. There's intercessory prayer. Has anybody heard of intercessory giving before? I mean, has anybody seen or heard of that concept? No, no, really? You have, you have. You mentioned it the other day. There's another one. Okay, so I want to explore that a little bit more just in a minute. I'm going to go way out on a limb. But before we get there, uh, there is precedent. You know, Peter went to Jesus and said, what about the taxes we got to pay? And Jesus says, no problem. Go catch a fish. First fish you bring, you catch, bring them to me. And he did, and lo and behold, there was a, uh, a shekel in the fish's mouth. I fish, that's never happened to me. <laughs> never. And uh, so Jesus said, here, you pay your tax, I'll pay my tax, we're all square with the city. So uh, that's intercessory giving, okay? So um, now I've talked about, I talked about, I work for an investment company and we invest in other people's lives. We invest in the kingdom. But there's, uh, in Matthew 25, 14, it says, it talks about the master who's going on a trip and he gives talents, which is a, a bucket of money, to three different servants. In Luke, it's five servants or something. But so that one servant, he gets three talents. And then one servant, or five talents. Then another servant gets two, and the one gets one, okay? And they all double their investment. Now, we don't know how long the investor, the, 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 the owner of this money, but uh, these guys are like the guys I work for. They're investment managers. Now, how much is a talent? I looked it up on Wikipedia. A talent is worth half a million dollars. So five talents is worth two and a half million dollars. You can do something with two and a half million dollars. And so what happens was, he came back, he says, you're rewarded. We're gonna double that two and a half million dollars. Well, guess what? That guy didn't get the two and a half million dollars. It was just added to his investment portfolio, okay? So it's still the master's money. And he got an extra $500,000 for the guy that just put it in the ground. So it's an investment portfolio. We are investment, uh, uh, we're asset managers, we're investment, like uh, Tom Durr invests the bank's money, right? It's not his money, but he gets a salary, maybe not enough, but I'm sure not enough. Tom is worth far more than what he gets. <laughs> but uh, we are investment managers in the kingdom of God. And so think of Joseph. Joseph was, he had everything in Egypt except he wasn't the boss. He still had to give preference to Pharaoh because Pharaoh owned everything. Joseph managed everything, but Pharaoh owned it. We manage everything. It says we're going to manage everything. We're supposed to manage everything. But who owns it? The Father, Jesus. Jesus is the king. So um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm, uh, it says, give, this is the, the conclusion here. So God takes care of all our needs according to his riches and glory, okay? We don't give out of compulsion, but we give uh, 
with uh, a glad heart. We give uh, with a smile on our face and, and, and because God loves a cheerful giver. And he gives, he gives to the measure we are generous and we give. So um, I want to do something today. I want to ask, is anybody right now, Clayton's already done a sort of a stand-up thing, but uh, need, know somebody with a financial need or has a financial need? We got hands, stand up. Stand up. I need five brave souls. Yes, stand up. And we're going to do something. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, let's see. Uh, let's do one, two, three, four, Five. Sorry, Dwayne. Okay, come on down. I'll get you later. Okay, now you've never probably, I've never seen this done before in church, and it wasn't my idea, okay? This is $500. This is five $100 bills. Now it's four. <laughs> and so what I'm doing, <laughs> okay, okay, so when I was praying about this, I, I put a fleece before the Lord. I said, Lord, it, well, Lord said, oh, wouldn't this be a great idea? Remember what I was saying, you know? He drops these ideas in your head. Wouldn't that be a great idea? I said, that's a great idea, Lord. He says, okay, why don't you do it? I thought, oh, this is really awkward, Lord. So this is by faith. Now, here's the, here's the deal. Uh, you are investment managers in the kingdom of God, okay? And, yeah, that's fine. You're fine. And... Uh, so you're investment managers in the kingdom of God. This money is given to you to invest in the kingdom of God. Now, you can invest it in a pair of shoes, or you can invest it and give it to somebody you know. You can put it in the box in the back, but you don't have to go out and bake cookies and try to bring back $200. That's not the point of this. The point of this is you're investing in the kingdom of God by faith, and there's only one catch, the one catch is that when something good happens, you can come give a two-minute testimony. Okay? All right. So what I'd like you to do, I gave Tracy a piece of paper. And so you get your $100 and you give Tracy your name. Okay? And then let me pray for you. And come on, let's get together and let's pray. And I'll give you $100. <laughs> so... Heavenly Father, we pray for these three, five, five, five brave souls here, Lord. And we pray prosperity and generosity, Lord. We're, we're giving money uh, not to get money, Lord. We're giving money to release faith in our lives because what the, all the money represents is our life and our time and our effort. And Lord, we just give it in faith, believing that you are able to multiply this in our lives and the lives of those that we come in contact with, Lord. And I pray for just a miraculous move of the Holy Spirit and using this uh, prompting, Lord, to, to do something really good. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Congratulations. Clayton, it's all yours, buddy. Well, imagine what we're going to do next week. Mark, well done. Really, who, thinks, who just thinks that that man has an understanding of God's financial system? Yeah. 
Really well done, Mark. But a culture and a spirit of generosity is just one of the cultures and one of the things that we've been talking about. So as this is the last week, so we've been in Numbers 13 and 14, looking at the first generation of Israelites, and then one, uh, Joshua versus, uh, chapter 1 to 4, looking at the second generation of Israelites, because they both were destined to walk into a place of promise, a, pl- a spacious place. And we talk about Canaan, we talk about the promised land, we talk about all these things that, well, what does that mean for us? What, how does that apply to my life? God has your spacious place and spacious seasons for you. But we're talking also for you individually, but also for this church. And it's very interesting to go look at Numbers 13 and 14, see the attitudes of the heart, see how they couldn't believe, they couldn't understand, they couldn't see with eyes of the Spirit, they couldn't do all of these things. Then they spent 40 years in the desert because they spent 40 days in the promised land, but they couldn't believe for it. So God said one year for each day, 40 years in the desert, now the second generation comes. Has the promised land changed? Have the giants left? Has anything changed? No, nothing, but they have changed. And so we're looking at Joshua, at some of the attitudes and some of the uh, the, the things they learned in the desert in order to take hold of. You with me? And there's many. There's probably hundreds. Honestly, there's probably hundreds of differences, and there's multiple scriptures that are just an incredible. For example, Exodus 13:17 says that God did not want to take them out of the promise, out of uh, Egypt, out of the world. That's a picture of salvation, and take them out of the world, out of Egypt, and straight into the promised land. The fastest route there, the fastest way, was past the Philistines. He said, but he didn't want to take them that way because they would see Philistines, and if they saw war, they would be afraid and they'd go back to Egypt. And that's us. We often want, Lord, now, like Mark says. It, it, didn't, it wasn't instant for them. It's, Lord, let's do this thing now. Let's just get this going so we can do this now. But God had to take them another way because they weren't ready for war. But after 40 years in the desert, as I've been saying, friends, the desert season is a gift. People always say, I'm in the desert, like it's a bad thing. It's a gift. It's a gift to get Egypt out of you, but it's also a gift to learn what we need to learn, to adjustments, the heart, and things we need to take hold of so that when that spacious place comes for you, a season in your life or a season in a body, when God starts to move powerfully, that's for me, our promised land. Powerfully, every week, every day even, when God starts to really descend upon a church or upon a city so that it can be sustained It's not just over. It can be sustained because we've learned things in the desert. We've learned things in our hearts. And it says that when they crossed, when the second generation crossed over the Jordan, it says when they crossed, they crossed 40,000 men prepared for war. Yet the previous generation couldn't even see it. They'd run away. Incredible transformation of God's people. Amen? Go to Joshua chapter 3. We're just going to read a little bit. And see where we go from there. Friends, Joshua chapter 3, I said this last week. That'll be great. Joshua chapter 3 says this. Then Joshua arose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and they lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, This is what we're going to do. This is how you need to prepare. And there's a, there's a place of positioning yourself to possess God's promise. Some of it's very practical, some of it's very spiritual. One main point that we're going to look at today. So it says, so it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests and the Levites bearing it, then you shall come out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, 
about 2,000 cubits by measure, do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Then Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that, you, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Let me just say, that I'm not referencing myself there, saying God is with me, but let me do say this. If you are part of this church or if you're visiting, you want the leadership that is over your life or the leadership in your church. You want to know that they know that without God they can do nothing. That's a fact. That's a fact, friends. If they're confident in themselves, I encourage you, run. 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 John 15, 5, apart from the Lord, we can do nothing. And that's, I believe, what is going on there. The people needed to see. This man needs to know he needs God. These people, this group, whoever that may be. Very, very important. Very, very important. Then it says this. Um, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. And then Joshua goes through it. Very important. Let me start with saying this. In Joshua chapter 3, it's a roadmap, I believe, if you really want to study it, and I don't have time to get into it, it's a roadmap on how to position your heart, your life, a church, a, fa a family, a fellowship group, whatever it may be, on how to begin to possess and walk into some of the promises of God that he's spoken over you. Eleven times in this chapter, it talks about the Ark of the Covenant. Eleven times in a very small chapter. We all know the Ark of the Covenant represents what? The presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. Friends, the presence of the Lord is no small thing. It's God's presence. I believe it's the number one sign of success. Not success that we're successful, but it's the litmus test. It's the litmus test. I've seen miracles, and I've, I've seen, honestly, with my own eyes, I've seen miracles, I've seen healings, people get out of wheelchairs, I've seen all that stuff. But I've seen some of that stuff when the presence of the Lord is not there because of the gift on a person, and it just is not comfortable. The presence of the Lord is above all of that. And these guys spent 40 years in the desert. What did they learn? I'll have to ask you for the sake of time. Go look at Numbers chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9 talks about the cloud, which also stands for the presence of God, the cloud would, and the fire. You know the cloud by day, the fire by night? It says the cloud would rest, so Israel would stop, and they would encamp around it. And it says sometimes it would, I'm paraphrasing, sometimes it would be there for two days, sometimes just from morning to evening, and they would just start unpacking and packing up their tent and, and setting everything up. And sometimes, and then as soon as they would get set up, then the cloud would up and move, and so they'd quickly pack up and move. I mean, that's kind of frustrating. And then sometimes it would stay for two years. They had no say over it. What's the point? They were learning some very important principles. And apart from God's presence, God's presence goes before them. It comes behind them. Their entire camp system 
was built with a presence at the center. And I believe that's the model of church. The presence is the center of everything that we do. In this house, it's always been a value. God's presence comes first. Above all things. All things. Many churches, and I, I say that like I'm in competition, I'm not. It's very easy to begin to center a church around a person, around a sermon. But you look at how Israel set up their camp. The tabernacle's in the middle. And that was the center of everything. Everything. And God taught them for years and years. Without my presence, you have nothing. It's your protection. It's your provision. It's what you use for war. They would take the ark into war. It's everything. Absolutely everything. Moses says, Moses says this. It's a fascinating verse. It says, So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey. Numbers 10, verse 33. Sorry, Andrew. So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them for the three days journey to search out a resting place. To search out a resting place. That speaks of an inheritance. Hebrews 3 and 4. Hebrews 3 and 4 is the two chapters that speaks about Numbers 13 and 14. And it says, There remains a rest for God's people here. I know heaven's coming, but there remains a rest, an inheritance, a spacious place, a rest here. And it's funny, and it has this paradoxical verse. It says, Make every effort to enter rest. Because heavenly rest is not about not working. It's not about lack of doing. Heavenly rest is God's presence. It says, And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day, and they went out from the camp. So it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said, whenever the presence of God would move, they would have to pick up the ark. It said, Rise up, our Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And whenever it rested, he said, Return, our Lord. To the many thousands, that word is actually translated to the teeming millions. Moses understood. And you know what they, they understood in the desert? And these are some of the things that the second generation understood. When they did the golden calf thing, you know the silliness? Build a golden calf, Aaron. I threw in the gold and I popped a calf. I love that he says that. That's what he said to Moses. It just popped out of the fire. He never said that. Moses goes up, gets the law, this incredible demonstrative display of God's power. He comes down, there's a golden calf. Now we know in this covenant, in the new covenant, God never leaves us. We know that. He takes residence within us. But to, as an example to the people that God was displeased with them, and we know the two different covenants, I hope you understand. Moses took the tabernacle, his tent, and he moved it outside the camp. And in that season of their life, they learned something very, very important. It says they would all wait and watch. I mean, imagine, just imagine. They would all wait and watch. And when the cloud would descend upon Moses' tent, Moses would, God would stand and speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And whenever the cloud descended, Exodus 33, go read it. Whenever the cloud descended, every man, the head of the house, every authority figure, every man would stand at the entrance of his tent and worship for as long as that cloud was there. And when the cloud would lift, they would continue with their day. And as the cloud descended, they would stand at the entrance of their tent again and worship. 
because the Lord was trying to teach him there's a link between my presence and worship. Because worship is based on his worth. There's a link, friends, between the worship we give the Lord. Not just singing songs, that's a part of it. Authority, there was the authority figures, and the presence of the Lord. And I've always encouraged people from that text, parents, your home is your tent. Whatever we do here, that's one thing. But worship at the entrance to your tent too. That's your home. Hello? Very, very powerful lesson. So the Israelites learned all these lessons. And every single time, in the, in, in the Joshua chapter 3, 11 times, it's the ark this, the ark that, take up the ark, put the ark down, take the ark, everything. Without the presence of the Lord, friends, we're going nowhere. Nowhere. But this is the one major difference. Always God's cloud, God's fire would move, and then they would follow. This would happen, then they would follow. Now I'm asking you to hear me on this. There are times when God moves sovereignly. And that's amazing, and I trust God make it today. But there are other times when he wants to take a group of people forward that he wants to work with them. And I cannot find a time before this. I mean, they would carry the ark around and stuff where, for the first time, the cloud and the fire didn't go ahead of them. You know that? Didn't go ahead of them. They wouldn't just, oh, it's moving, okay, let's move. It became automatic. The Lord said to Joshua, command the priests, the Christians, to take up the ark and go stand. Cloud didn't move, fire didn't move. Why? Because they're about to enter God's promises. They need to understand what it means to take up God's presence. That's what it says. It says, Joshua said, sanctify yourself. He says, then Joshua spoke to the priest saying, verse 6, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. There is a learned, I don't want to say it, it's a skill. It's a spiritual practice. And for everyone, it's different. For some, it's worship. For some, it's the Word. For some, it's whatever, an instrument. For some, it's, but friends, there's a skill. Some, it's intercession. It's the leaders. He didn't say, leaders, you stand and you just give vision, you know, in county, and you just... People go, people go. He said, no, 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 no. The people will come when they see the, the leadership hosting the presence of the Lord upon themselves. When they can host the Lord's presence, when they can take it up and know what it is to host it, know what it is to carry it, know what it is to have the glory of God rest upon a person, upon a group, then the people cross. Because without that, we go nowhere. And that's always been a value for this house. And it will always be a value for this house. Amen? Always has to be. But friends, there's something very interesting, Joshua, that Joshua had to say, when you've come to the waters, the edge of the water, go stand in it. He said, when you come there, stand in it. I said this last week, and I'll say this, and I'll be done. I said last week I made a statement which is, can be misunderstood, but you cannot obey unless you believe. You cannot obey unless you believe. No, you can. 
Of course you can. You can do the right thing and go through this, the motions. And, but I'm talking about obedience from a heart of faith. The Bible speaks about the obedience of faith. Hebrews 3.18. Could you just throw Hebrews 3.18 up? Thanks, Andrew. Hebrews 3, uh, you know what it might. Go to 17. Now, with whom was he angry for 40 years? Again, talking about Numbers 13, 14. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? Sorry, that's not a pleasant verse. Next one. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? Next one. So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. See that word unbelief? See that word unbelief? It's the word apatheia. We get our word apathy from that word. 50% of the time, in the King James, in the Strong's Concordance, whatever, 50% of the time in the New King James, every time that word is translated, 50% of the time it's translated unbelief, 50% of the time it's translated disobedience. What's the point? In the Old Covenant, and I know I'm throwing a big mark made reference to this, in the Old Covenant, to be disobedient was to break the law of Moses. It was this, that's sin, you break the law, you've been disobedient. Then you come to Christ. In the new covenant, to disobey is unbelief. It's not about doing right or wrong. It's unbelief. Because what's rooted in our heart, anything, now it's all things of the Spirit, all things of the new covenant, when we don't do this, or when we do this, or when we make bad choices, or when we go against God's will, or when anything we do is actually rooted, and we can, I can take a whole series if you need, in a facet of God's nature, of God's goodness, of God's character that we have not seen, have not had revelation of, or cannot believe for because of hurt or disappointment. It's based and rooted in unbelief. That's a fact. Because belief determines your behavior. Belief determines what you do. So it says they could not enter because of unbelief slash or disobedience because for them it was the same thing, friends. So this is how it works. It's very, very important that we understand that. Acts 5 says the Holy Spirit, Acts 5.32, the Holy Spirit is given, the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey. I don't think that's in reference to salvation. People say, well, it's not. It's to empower for the supernatural task. So this is what I'm talking about. Wrap it all together. It's an incredibly powerful principle. God speaks to us. God speaks to you. These are the promises I have. These are the plans. This is the destiny. I want you to do this or do that. God speaks. When he speaks, we've been talking about a culture of belief. If we believe it, if we believe, simple belief. If you believe it, you'll do something. When you believe, you act, right? It's not theory. If you really believe, you do something. You believe it in your heart. Because you believe it with faith, you believe your circumstances still don't match. Just like the Israelites. You're like, well, that's great, Lord, but take a look at this lot. It's not, you know, not going to work. There's still giants, there's all this stuff. But he's spoken. When he speaks and you believe, you begin to act upon what he has spoken because you believe. If you don't believe, you don't act. It remains theory. It remains epithelial. But he speaks, you act. It's kind of what Mark just spoke about money. Lord, I'm writing the check because, you know, it's faith, he said. So you, you act. That's obedience. But it's obedience from faith. Then the Bible says the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey. 
then the Spirit comes upon what you've just, that step you've taken, that act, or whatever that may be, and He, the Spirit of God, comes upon the situation or upon you as a person, and He removes the impossibility. Hello? That's what happens. So when he said, Joshua, go into the Jordan. Joshua, do this. Or Moses, do this. Or Ken, I want you to do this. Or Dwayne, I want you to do this. Well, Lord, the situation doesn't match. Nothing changes. So we'll stay and we pray and we pray, but nothing changes. We try this, nothing changes. We try this, nothing changes. There are times, friend, when God wants to partner with you. Believe him in faith. Take a step. In that step, the Holy Spirit is given to empower that the impossibility will now be removed because you've acted. Joshua said to the people, to the Levites, when you get to the river, make sure you stand in the water. Because until your feet touch the water, the water's staying there. They didn't have just their faith and their conviction alone. They said, God, we believe you. That's wonderful. Thank you that you're going to do this. We believe you. Do the thing, Lord. No, we believe you, really. I promise we believe you. Do the thing. He said, when you get to the water, stand in the water. When you stand in the water, I'll act. And it says they all crossed over on dry land. That's Faith 101. Now, part of what we've done, showing you the buildings and showing you the plans, friends, that's faith. Why? No leadership gets out of that. Hey, look at what we're going to do. Situation hasn't changed. The impossibilities haven't been removed. That's us stepping in the water. Because we don't get to come and say in the next couple of weeks, well, you know, things are a little tougher than we thought, so we changed our mind a little bit. No, friends. God's spoken. And he said very clearly to me a very specific promise when I took over. I will build you a house. And I know what he meant. And he confirmed it the next day. I got someone sent me the same scripture. God's spoken, but it's time to step in the water. It's time to act. Amen? Amen. It's interesting. That's why we always say faith is active. Because the Greek word apatheia means what? Apathy. means apathy. So, I think we'll end there. But friends, what's interesting is when they walked into the Jordan... When they walked over, what is the first thing they did when they crossed into promise? What's the first thing they did? They set up a memorial. I saw Odessa. That's what I love about Sam's message. He's our testimony man. That's what I love about this morning. Why did Israel keep getting into trouble all through the Old Testament? Because it keeps saying, for they forgot what the Lord had done. They forgot, they forgot, they forgot, they forgot. The first culture they established as they walked into promise was what? A culture of testifying. This is what God has done. And we built a memorial. We can always point back to it. And we celebrate every little thing. Amen?